trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I need to make this clear right from the beginning. You are under no obligation whatsoever to believe a single thing you hear come out of my mouth. I just want to make this easy. I want to make it very plain that, uh, look, I have no expectation that you're just going to sit back and nod thoughtfully about everything I say. It's like my friend Kyle said the other day, I, and by the way, I appreciate that. He and other farmers out there uh, working away. He says, you know, uh, he was listening to the show and he says, sometimes he says uh, he's in lockstep with me. Other times, not even close, but it doesn't matter. We still appreciate one another. I still learn from him. Hopefully he still learns from me. And, and I know this is going to strike you as strange, but that's the way it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to see everything exactly the same. I'm just here to help stimulate some independent thought, which it turns out is uh, kind of necessary right now, especially with all the crazy stuff that we're facing. Not to put too fine a point on it, but, uh, you know, the, the, the difficulty level of life does not appear to be moving in the easier direction. So it seems like now is a good time to, to really find where your foundations are. Find what, uh, what you stand on and uh, to remain rooted in reality to the best of your ability. That can be a pretty tough haul. I don't have all the answers, but I'm definitely going to provide you with some content that should help you in that quest. What you do with the information, now that's up to you. I'm just here to facilitate uh, a few things to consider, some of which will fall outside of the boundaries of approved opinion, but that's kind of the point. If you can only think approved opinion, you're, uh, you're really not learning anything. You're letting somebody else do your thinking for you. By the way, some great sponsors make this program possible on a day-to-day basis. I have a link in my show notes, actually to the sponsors. You can stop by and you can visit for yourself, Dixie Chiropractic, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I was talking with my son the other day. We were, we were driving around and I, I said, you know, I have this r- weird sense of deja vu. And, and it was hard to put my finger on, but I, I realized what it was. It was that, uh, that sense of things are kind of good. I mean, well, actually, things, things are really good in many ways. As much as I complain about all the stuff that's going wrong, there is so much in life that is beautiful, that's good, and right, in spite of all the challenges. And, and not all the challenges are political, right? I mean, there, there, are, there are certain challenges that just they defy politics. They're just part of life. Parents getting older, you know, your kids when they're having trouble. Uh, these are things that are that are going to take priority over, well, did you see what the president tweeted? Oh, man, you know, life life is too short to, to get caught up in the, uh, the ephemera, the stuff that really doesn't matter after just a very short time. And the, the weird feeling of deja vu that I'm having is taking me back to a time about uh, 20 years ago. Let's see, well, a little more than 20 years ago. About 21 years ago, actually. And it was June of 2001. A good friend of mine flew up to southern Idaho to pick up a car that I was purchasing. We were going to drive it back to southern Utah. And I just remember, you know, it was it was such a great time in the sense that, 
you know, there was there was nothing really obviously dangerous on the horizon. And, you know, we, we flew up on, on SkyWest and flew standby. And, you know, that means you're going to spend some time in the airport. This is the thing that kind of amazes me. I remember my friend, as we were going through the security screening, emptying his pockets into the tray before we walked through the metal detector. One of the things he put into the tray was his pocket knife. And I'm not just talking about, oh, yes, a little, you know, pocket knife. We're talking about, uh, how can I put this nicely? An automatic knife. Some would call it a switchblade. Purists would say it's not really a switchblade unless it comes straight out. But it's a spring-opened knife, which, by the way, is perfectly legal. But, uh, you know, the, people would, would, their eyes would bug out of their heads at the idea of, wait, your friend was going through airport security with a switchblade? And the answer is yes. And as we went through the security screening checkpoint, you know, the, the screener uh, picked up the knife, looked at it, eh, put it back in the tray, and waved my friend on through. And he put it in his pocket, and off we went onto our flight. Little did we know, just a little less than three months later, everything in the world was going to turn on its ear with September 11th. And I kind of have that strange feeling now. And I, I'm, I'm not trying to say, you know, I'm, I'm portending doom. I'm just saying there's a sense, though, that, that what we have right now is, is not set in stone. And I don't mean to be fatalistic. I'm not trying to be gloomy. I'm just saying the, the, the sh- I could not have anticipated the shift that was coming in June of 2001. For the most part, life seemed pretty good. There were challenges, but, you know, it wasn't anything really major. And then September 11th came, and suddenly everybody's mindset shifted. And, and I'm, I'm sharing this with you as a preface to what I'd like to share next, and that is I feel like we are approaching a moment of serious national crisis, and this could be on any number of fronts. I mean, politically, there are people who are thirsting for violence. It's not just the political left. There are people on the political right that also are like, let's get this over with. Let's pull the gloves off and let's have this out. We have an extremely divided country. And one of the crazy things that you have to think about is what has contributed to that moment of national crisis, to that that approaching sense of danger. I've got an article here from Steve McCann, which makes a pretty strong case that one of the things that has, has contributed to the growing tension and the growing conflict around us has been the citizenry's willingness to surrender their freedoms. Now, this may seem disconnected, but I want you to hear the case he lays out. He says, over the past two decades, far too many citizens of the United States have willingly surrendered their rights and freedoms, and now they're on the cusp of being unrestorable. This erosion and voluntary forfeiture have empowered the ruling elites as well as the radical left. Ominous societal conditions have created that risk, have been created rather, that risk national dissolution or a civil war. And he says three events in the past 21 years have been the primary catalysts that have accelerated and exacerbated this this seemingly irreversible outcome. The first was the reaction to the terrorist attack on September 11, 2001. The second was the election of Barack Obama. The third, the lockdown and medical tyranny of the Chinese coronavirus pandemic. And he goes through and he starts to list how each one of these affected our lives. And again, you don't have to agree with this, but I think he makes a a pretty, he does a pretty good job of connecting dots here, in, in my opinion. 
He says, after the events of September 11, 2001, Congress, with no outcry from the populace and near unanimous agreement from both political parties, passed the Patriot Act, as well as other legislation. And these laws expanded the definition of terrorism and the government's ability to define, at their whim, what terrorism is. Further, the government was granted near unlimited power to combat whatever it defined as terrorism. And within less than 10 years, that power was turned against the American people, and new catchphrases began to be used by the ruling class, white supremacy, domestic terrorism. So his point is that a new era was spawned, which allowed the government to use its newly acquired powers to spy on and intimidate innocent Americans both at home and abroad. So the post-September 11, 2001 era began an accelerated erosion of these freedoms. Freedom of speech, as the definition of terrorism and the government's power to confront it expanded, any nonviolent civil disobedience can lead to a terrorist label and potential prosecution, depending on the whim of the party in power. That's why you see parents at school board meetings being labeled as potential terrorists. Additionally, the government can also coerce conventional and social media companies into censoring, on behalf of the party in power, speech they consider to be disinformation or sedition. It also accelerated the erosion of our equal protection under the law. In direct violation of the 14th Amendment, the government can and routinely does surveil Americans and can choose to, unbeknownst to those persons, put them on a watch list or a no-fly list because of their political affiliations. It's affected our freedom of association. Now the government has the power to monitor and infiltrate, under the guise of fighting domestic terrorism, any domestic political or religious group solely on the basis of political activism. Now whether or not that group has ever been convicted of a crime in the past or not, that's immaterial. And finally, it's eroded our freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures. The government can conduct searches and wiretaps without probable cause. It can coerce private communications companies into surrendering their users' data and can even seize property without any initial due process. Now, we're going to come back to this in just a few moments, but the key here is, you know, okay, so government's doing these things. I think we probably talked about this kind of stuff on the show over the years and, you know, tried to point people towards, hey, that's not a good idea. But do you know why this effort to expand government at the expense of your individual liberties has been so successful? According to Steve McCann, it's because too many of us, people like you and me, went along with it willingly. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you by Sewing and Quilting Center, located in St. George, Utah. Although, if you live within a 200-mile radius of Sewing and Quilting Center, it's worth your time to go and see them and to purchase your sewing machines, your embroidery machines, your long-arm quilting machines from them. Not only do they have a terrific selection from entry-level models up to the very high-end models that uh, are basically the sky's the limit, but they'll teach you how to use your machine. They will actually offer you free classes how to use it to its fullest potential. They have all the supplies. They take care of you by servicing those machines and even including machines you didn't buy from them. Full service. 
Sewing and Quilting Center. It's in St. George, Utah, and you can click on the link I provide in my show notes to visit their website and see what they're all about. So I'm showing this article from Steve McCann about how our citizenry's willingness to surrender their freedoms is pushing us closer and closer to real, serious conflict in this country. And he talks about three events that uh, specifically have have uh, been catalysts that accelerated and exacerbated this seemingly irreversible outcome. The reaction to September 11th, 2001 was one of them. The election of Barack Obama was the second. In fact, let's take a moment and talk about that. He says Barack Obama, who he calls the most malevolent president in American history, greatly accelerated the process of eroding American freedoms. Obama and his henchmen set out to deliberately fan the flames of race and identity politics in order to divide an essentially undivided citizenry. In 2010, only 13% of Americans were greatly concerned or worried about the state of race relations in the country. But by the end of Obama's second term, that number had skyrocketed to 42%. Now, their goal was to foment racial animosity and riots with the objective of enhancing the power of the central government by further diminishing the rights of the people. So Obama unabashedly and falsely claimed racism is permanently embedded in America's DNA. In other words, systemic racism. And he rarely missed an opportunity to pour gasoline on potentially volatile occurrences, even if the facts were unknown or totally fabricated. He effectively espoused blatant racism and discrimination against the white population by promoting racial or radical racist, racist doctrines such as critical race theory. And it's not an overstatement to say that Obama's treachery has been successful in convincing far too many Americans to foolishly accept the lie that this nation is irredeemable because of systemic racism. Therefore, radical transformation of society is necessary. Now, this ongoing transformation includes censorship of what leftists define as hate speech or misinformation, the de facto elimination of the Second Amendment, the eradication of freedom of association, the nullification of equal protection under the law, and the purging of economic and religious freedom. Just for the record, I know Obama definitely was, uh, he was one of the factors that has contributed to our current situation. I don't know if I would put quite as much credit at his feet, but, you know, to each his own. I really haven't had a whole lot of faith in, in any presidents, at least uh, not since Ronald Reagan. And even Reagan made some pretty bad mistakes. Now, the third event that hastened the loss of freedoms was the deliberate overreaction to the Chinese coronavirus and the attendant lockdowns and medical tyranny. Like 9-11, he says, a crisis created new opportunities to restrict freedom in the name of protecting people from a so-called existential threat. Now, Steve McCann says freedom of speech, the right of bodily autonomy, also, freedom to worship or travel or associate were abrogated by political leaders using unlawful emergency powers. Unconstitutional governmental mandates covering virtually all aspects of daily life and medical treatment with unproven vaccines that did not work were enforced. With little or no pushback from the citizenry, governments unnecessarily shuttered schools, forced businesses to close, and to dismiss or fire employees for disobeying government mandates and passed new coercive laws while spending trillions on their favored causes. He says, for far too many Americans, preconditioned to willingly surrender their rights and freedoms over the past two decades, they submissively acquiesced to this evolutionary process. 
And in turn, it's brought about a deeply unhealthy society with a dysfunctional, albeit powerful, government dominated by the totalitarian left. So the forces he sees that have been created and that are pushing us toward dissolution or even toward civil war include tribalism, as the nation splits into implacable factions and animosity grows, making dialogue or cooperation virtually impossible. I mean, come on. Have you heard some of the threats coming from the political left in particular if, uh, if Roe v. Wade is overturned in an upcoming Supreme Court decision? I mean, they're making a lot of hay on, oh, January 6th was a terrible insurrection, and yet some of the same people making the biggest noise about that are saying, burn the country down if the Supreme Court does this. Yeah. We also have lack of a shared culture. Steve McCann says an increasingly sizable portion of the American populace believes this nation is not exceptional. And in fact, it is irredeemable. Its founding is flawed, its history rife with atrocities that are due to the Judeo-Christian underpinning of its founding documents. Now, the rest of the citizenry passionately does not agree, but there's just no middle ground. Another thing that's pushing us toward civil war or dissolution is gun confiscation. He says the ruling elite's radical left know that it would be a logistical impossibility to confiscate guns in the United States. But they're convinced that the time is at hand to force de facto confiscation through red flag laws, taxes, additional regulations, gun registration, and using liability laws to lawsuits rather to shutter gun and am, and ammunition manufacturers. Confiscation by overt or devious means could of itself risk an end to this republic. And we also have the problems to deal with of the federal government being an overbearing leviathan. Come on, we're a nation of 330 million people, uh, the size of the continent of Europe. We can't be unilaterally governed by a central power. Federalism is the safety valve on the American pressure cooker, as the citizens of 50 different states can, for the most part, decide for themselves how they want to live. And then, number five, there's a lack of societal morality. In their pursuit of shallow hedonism and online fame, the ever, an ever-growing number of Americans and their leaders have abandoned morality and respect for others born and unborn. And we see this being played out today with the uh, unabashedly promotion of sexual exploitation and indoctrination of children. And, of course, the duplicity of, well, that's not really what it's about. Even as you have, you know, you know half-naked people or fully naked people, you know, gyrating and, and waving their stuff around in kids' faces. Oh, look, isn't it fun, kids? Look how inclusive we're being. If someone had suggested even five years ago that this would be normalized, people would have said, no way, no way at all. And yet here we are. As a society, Steve McCann says, Americans are increasingly becoming a soft and decadent people that will not be able to successfully confront the challenges the future will inevitably bring. He says, when the citizenry faces challenges larger than the nation can handle because of ideologically bound and self-absorbed politicians and a majority hedonistic populace, then this nation as presently constituted will not survive. So unless and until the ruling elites and radical left are bludgeoned into waking up to the stark reality facing this nation and abandon their ideologically driven authoritarian mindset, this nation will in due course risk either dissolution or a potential civil war. Man, that's an ugly prospect. Now, I'm not going to suggest anybody ought to just, you know, shrug that off. Yeah, well, you know, what can you do? Well, it's true that there are some things 
that are clearly out of your control and my control. I just want to remind you, the one place where we always have the ability to move the needle is in what we allow to come into the world through us and through our actions. So, yeah, you may be saying, I'm just one person. You know, what difference does it make if I, if I mind my manners or if I behave myself? But a person who has committed to living up to the truths that they possess, doing the right thing, even when or especially when it's hard to do, is by their actions not allowing evil to enter the world through them. And it may not be the ultimate solution, but it's uh, it's definitely making a difference. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a quick shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. This should be your supplier of high quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. Got a link in my show notes. You can click right on their website and go shopping. Remember, ammunition is the perfect way to convert money into skill as well as a great store of value. You know, if you're looking for the other precious metals in which to, uh, you know, to store some value for a rainy day, that's uh, that's a pretty good place to look. HSLAmmo.com. Got a couple stories I want to touch on in this segment. One of them has to do with uh, masks and mask policies. Now, I have, I got to say, I feel so blessed to live in an area where masks are almost, uh, an, they're almost a non-issue. It's very rare now to encounter anybody out in public wearing a face mask. Much less, you know, to encounter someone who's out there enforcing, hey, you can't come in here without a mask. Unless you're visiting a medical facility that's still taken in by mask mania or, you know, maybe you live in in a very progressive part of a big city. You know, you're generally living your life without being forced to stick that useless bacteria-laden piece of material over your face. Now, for those people across the country, though, who don't find themselves in such circumstances, there's an article here from Scott Moorfield. This is from the Brownstone Institute. Scott Moorfield says, if your overlords have gone out of their way to clarify that mask mandates have only been lifted because COVID rates have gone down or that even the recent iterations of the virus have become less deadly, he warns that they're purposefully missing the overall picture. And in fact, what they're doing is slyly holding on to the pretext that will invite the insanity back at any point. The idea that masks work or to stop the curb of the spread of highly contagious respiratory viruses. Now, Scott Moorfield comes right out and says they don't. Obviously, masks don't stop the spread of it. But their rigid belief system is not surprising. Belief in the power and efficacy of face masks has become a de facto religion to them. And he says they're just itching for the next opportunity to impose their faith upon us. I'll let you check out the article for yourself. I think it has some very good points. His his main idea here is, look, he says, why aren't there discernibly lower death and infection rates in the places that have masked up for the past two years versus those that barely did anything? That's a fair question. But the truth is, there aren't discernibly lower death and infection rates because this has been a gigantic house of cards that continues to fall down around them. And he says, let's make sure that it never gets rebuilt. 
I mean, for crying out loud, Dr. Fauci himself, after being, what, uh, twice or thrice vaccinated and boosted and, and always masked, always masked, now he's tested positive. By the way, I'm not wishing ill on the guy. I'm just thinking, isn't that ironic? You don't talk about a self-own. Well, he followed all the Fauci protocols, you know. Hope he recovers quickly. But uh, let's let's not uh, hold our breath that uh, he's going to give up trying to impose his version of what's best for us. And sometimes it really, I think for me, this, this is the reason why I have dug my heels in and just absolutely refused to go along with anything that, that is mandated, whether it be masks or whether it be vaccinations. It's the nature of, it's, it's all about uh, forcing compliance. You can call me, well, you're a vax denier, man, or you're a mask denier, or whatever. I'll tell you what I'm a denier of is giving somebody else the opportunity to force me to do something against my better interests or against my wishes. I don't care if they think they know better. I don't care if they have a degree from Stanford. Speaking of Stanford, saw an amazing article. Uh, this is from Max Meyer, How I Almost Didn't Graduate from Stanford. Now, he completed a Bachelor's of Science degree from Stanford, and he says, I graduated on Sunday, but it almost didn't happen because Stanford was going to hold up his degree, which he had fully earned, but the reason they were going to uh, hold it up is because, according to their records, he was unboosted, meaning he was in a state of what they called vaccine noncompliance and not keeping our campus community safe. But here's the thing. Max Meyer hadn't lived on Stanford's campus since November. That's when he finished his last course. And they announced their booster mandate in December, at which time he was actually recovering from COVID infection and moving to Texas. So he was fully vaccinated. He had two shots, but he wasn't boosted. And because their records didn't show him as boosted, well, we can't give you a degree. And it was interesting because the when he, when he reached out to to the uh, university and said, hey, why are you holding up my, my degree? The response that he got back was, well, the uh, university's uh, booster mandate was announced in December 2021 and not predicated on history of infection or physical location. Listen to this. We have uniformly enforced the mandate regardless of student location. You could be on a Pacific island somewhere, but boy, you better be... You know, you better meet what we say you have to have in terms of, you know, the vaccine and the boosters. And this is the line that really blows me away. I appreciate that precarious circumstance in which you now find yourself, but I will not override the current vaccine noncompliance registration hold. Noncompliance. And by the way, they signed it. MDPHD. Noncompliance. That's exactly what it was about. It wasn't based on history of infection or physical location. It was based on getting people to comply. I mean, I don't know if that says to you what it says to me, but it's like the public health was a secondary concern to the public's compliance. And I think I have a real problem with that. All right, shifting gears. There's another article here, and I know that, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't I don't know what's more alarming if it's the, the ever-rising prices or it's the prospect of empty store shelves. Both of them kind of give me uh, a bad case of indigestion. But Richard Ron, writing for uh, the Washington Times, 
says that behind every shortage and every price spike is a bungled government policy. Let me give you a couple of excerpts from his article. He says, in a market economy, persistent shortages of goods and services are not supposed to occur, unlike in socialist economies. So in free markets, if demand begins to exceed the supply for something, producers will raise prices until the point where supply and demand are in equilibrium. Those higher prices serve to motivate sellers to produce more and to allocate scarce resources in order to avoid shortages. And there can be temporary supply shocks like where a critical raw material becomes scarce because of a flood or drought or earthquake or war or whatever. But normally, producers adjust quickly and find ways to meet demand. So how then can we have persistent shortages in toilet paper, a product invented more than 150 years ago when there's no shortage of trees? Insulin was invented a century ago and is critical for the world's 537 million diabetics, 37 million in the U.S. alone. And the price has been soaring and now costs 10 times more in the U.S. than in any other developed country. He says the world, and particularly the U.S., is awash with oil and gas, yet prices have tripled in the last couple of years and are at record highs. And there's also been a global shortage of semiconductor chips, particularly high-end chips. Baby formula, a product made for decades, is suddenly all but unobtainable in many places. Now remember, in communist and socialist countries, production decisions are made by state bureaucrats, who often make incorrect forecasts, resulting in shortages of things people need and want, and surpluses of things for which there's little demand. Now in a market economy, the lack of competition... Too few competitors or competitors that collude with each other can lead to higher prices and less innovation. This is why monopolies and many organized collusive oligopolies are often deemed illegal. In fact, a large body of antitrust law has been developed to deal with that perceived problem. But he says the government antitrusters have often missed the mark by attacking companies that posed little or no dangers while totally missing the real dangers to the system. <clears throat> So from here, he he goes into, you know, some of the different ways that government is responsible for lack of competition in many industries. And it's due to things like regulations or patent or intellectual property provisions or trade agreements and subsidies, even political attacks on the industry. I still find it ridiculous that, you know, our our current administration blames the, the Putin price hike for why you and I are paying so much for gas and so much for groceries. That's not the case. There's a lot of, of uh, government regulation that has contributed to our, our difficulties. In fact, according to Richard Ron, behind every shortage, almost every shortage and price spike, is some bungled government, co- government policy. I mean, price controls always lead to shortages, black markets, and corruption. But he says, other than less government regulation in general, there is no simple solution other than to take on each market impediment one by one. The solutions to all the shortages that he talks about here are, are known. It's not rocket science, he says. It's, it's common sense. And I know for some people it's, that's unthinkable. What, you're suggesting government get out of the way? But that's exactly what he's saying. And when government does get out of the way and the market is allowed to operate according to the choices that people make, it finds that sweet spot all by itself. That is the beauty of the free market. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Anyone who has listened to this show for a long time knows that uh, my best content never comes from me. It always comes from other great contributors, including my listening audience. And I'd, I'd like you to meet Leo. Leo Eager is, is one of our listeners. And uh, Leo, you approached me with a very interesting idea a few days ago. And, and thinking it over, I thought, yeah, this it's a timely one. Let's do this. Before we jump into this, though, we're going to be talking about uh, a guide for interpreting the real meaning of Democratic talking points. In case people haven't figured that out, uh, you know, just from watching the press conferences. Tell me a little bit about yourself. What's, what's your story? Yeah, no, it's great to be here on the show. So I retired about four years ago. And, you know, during my career, I listened, followed politics a normal amount, which is to say, you know, I watched the nightly news and voted a couple times, you know, every two years. And then I retired and I started paying more attention. And the Democrats started using language that I just couldn't figure out what they were talking about. And so that's what led to the Democratic Dictionary. <laughs> All right. No, I, th- I think this is an excellent idea. Now, in interest of fairness, I'm going to say Republicans have their share of spin, too. But since Joe Biden took office, especially, I have never seen such blatant spin, and, and particularly on the part of the news media, anytime that uh, a Democrat says something, there's there's always some convenient cover. So let's let's give an example of, of what this looks like. Can we, can we do that? Yeah. I'll, I'll well, give... so, well, I'll just give you four or five of them, just okay. right off the top, and then we'll cover some others. Sounds good. So bail reform. You know, who could be re- opposed to bail reform, right? Um, how about gender-affirming health care? Mm. You know, that sounds good, right? <laughs> how could you be opposed to that? Mm-hmm. How about bringing down costs for Americans? Well, we all know that really means they're going to subsidize some people, you know, paid for by everybody else. Anyway, so those are just a few examples. Okay. So it's this is the, – the clear meaning is never really stated – but it's always stated in a warm, fluffy, euphemistic way. And let's just let's just dive into this list. He he has sent me a list here of, of a number of these of these talking points. So the first talking point is we are following the recommendations of the CDC. Well, this is the easiest one to interpret because we all know what they really mean is the CDC is following our instructions. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, or, or we don't want to face accountability for these kind of decisions. Exactly. <laughs> That's what it is. Else. <laughs> it's, it's just cover. Okay, how about this one? Everyone needs COVID booster shots. Well, they started saying that only a few months after we had the vaccines. But what that really means, obviously, is the vaccines aren't working why else would you need a booster? <laughs> Very true. But they won't say that. Now, if Dr. Fauci himself, um, you know, triple vaxxed and boosted, uh, if he weren't uh, currently uh, dealing with COVID, uh, maybe he could join us to talk about that. But uh, for some reason, he's <laughs> he and Justin Trudeau are tied up. Okay, here's here's another one. Follow the science. Well, and you brought up Dr. Fauci, and this is you heard this follow the science from the Fauci crowd. Well, they're not saying that. What they really mean is we'll tell you what the science says and don't question our interpretation of it. 
Boy. And we've heard that repeatedly, right? <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, we have. Okay, here's another timely one now that we're a little more than halfway through Pride Month. Don't say gay. Well, so this um, obviously is dating back to a couple months ago with the uh, Florida law, DeSantis, and the trans community went nuts um, over this one. Well, there's only one reason that they would be upset by this law. Obviously, what they're really saying is we want to discuss sexual identity with young children, which Mm. some people might call grooming. And they really don't like that word. <laughs> okay. And here's, a, here's another one. Trans woman. Well, and I had to put this on the list just because I think it's funny. But trans woman really just means dude in a dress, right? <laughs> yeah. I think people still living in reality would, would say, no matter what yeah. we say, the, the, the reality is this. Okay. How about preferred pronouns? Well, so when I first heard the term preferred pronouns, I had to ask my daughter, what in the heck are they talking about? Well, preferred pronoun really means use a feminine pronoun, even though I'm obviously a man. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I know this one, I want to skip ahead to this one here because I know this, this was when we heard a lot when the vaccine mandates were going on, and that is my body, my choice. Well, and again, so this one um, with the Roe v. Wade leak recently, mm-hmm. I saw countless pictures of young people marching in the streets, wearing T-shirts and carrying placards, my body, my choice, you know, hands off my body. Well, what they're really saying is women should have the right to late-term abortions, but people have no right to decide whether or not to get a COVID shot. Uh, and this one drives me nuts because Roe v. Wade was based on privacy, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what about medical privacy? This is such a contradiction. No, that's that's an excellent point. Here's another one people are going to relate to. Gas prices are too high. What are they really saying? Well, in, increasingly you're hearing the Democrats even say that. But what they really mean is put on a sweater and buy an electric vehicle. In uh, fact, yes. we heard we heard Pete Buttigieg say exactly that. That's which is it's very much kind of the modern version of let them eat cake. When when people complain to Marie Antoinette, <laughs> yeah, hey, these people exactly. are starving. Well, they can't afford bread, then let them eat cake. All right, yeah. how how about this one? Transitory. Well, we heard that a lot last year about inflation, right? Mm-hmm. Well, they got that one wrong. What they really meant was don't worry about inflation because it will magically go away. <laughs> we've, we've learned a painful <laughs> lesson since then. Okay, when, exactly. when I hear someone say mon- modern monetary theory, what does that really mean? Well, so obviously this is that idea that you can just spend as much as you want. And so what they're really saying is spend as much as you can and later we'll try to come up with a solution. And that's exactly where we are right now. Okay, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit on the list, but uh, um, I know we yeah. also we also heard the phrase "mostly peaceful protest." Okay, well, so what that really means is any left wing protest, even if there's extreme violence and theft, and we all saw the video, right? Oh yeah, in 2020, 
<laughs> standing in front of the burned out ruins of businesses. It was yep. mostly peaceful. Mostly peaceful. Protest. <laughs> okay, but how about this one? Threat to democracy. I've heard that a lot lately. Well, obviously, a threat to democracy is any right-wing protest. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Well, these these are tracking these are tracking right on target here. Um, how about disinformation slash misinformation? What does that mean? Well, again, we've heard a lot of this lately. You know, the uh, the Ministry of Truth and all that. What they really mean is anyone who disagrees with the Democrats. <laughs> yep. Um, and uh, how about this one? Climate change is an existential threat. Well, we hear that all the time. But what they're really saying is we are destroying the economy by enacting policies that might have a modest benefit sometime in the distant monkey body future. But, uh, you know, obviously, anyway. Okay, we've got just about a minute left here, so I want to jump on this one just because I've heard this a lot in the last couple of days, and that is greedy oil companies are price gouging. What does that really mean? Um, I'm looking for that one on my list way down. I mean, it seems like the president, Uh-oh. the president was actually using this even just yesterday about, you know, <laughs> these oil companies, you guys need to do something about high prices because you are price gouging. What, uh, what's, what's the, the definition, the real definition behind, uh, greedy oil companies or price gouging? Oh, I've got I'm it in front of me. I've got it okay, in front of me. Ahead. Um, didn't he announce that he was going to kill the fossil fuel industries, like right when he took office? In fact, when he was oh, campaigning, right? Absolutely. They're doing exactly what they said they were going to do. And just pretending to be surprised. Well, that's weird. Their prices went up. Hey, you guys should uh, stop doing something about it. Well, Leo, I appreciate you jumping on the show with me today and, and sharing a humorous take on uh, you know cutting through the spin. I may have you come back on for a future segment. In fact, I, I may have you come back on as as we encounter more of these phrases, just so you can kind of help us uh, cut through the fog and and stay tethered to the truth. Would you be willing to to come on and join me? Absolutely. I think this is fun, um, but I also think there's a lot of truth uh, buried underneath all this stuff, and we need to be aware of what's going on. I'd love to come back. Okay, this is all about asking questions, folks. It's all about questioning the narrative, and Leo here has taken the initiative to actually write up a dictionary of Democrat talking points with definitions. Leo, thank you so much. You're welcome. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, our unofficial motto here is this is where we revel in wrong think. And I have to admit, I I do take a certain amount of pride, and yes, I get some self-satisfaction from not being bamboozled by whatever is being peddled by the great uh, propaganda machine, which is much of the mainstream media, the heritage press, and pretty much anything that any government agency is putting out there in the form of a press release. I don't know why, but uh, but it feels good to 
to see things for what they are, <clears throat> even though I don't have all the answers and even though I don't pretend to, to be able to see, you know, to perceive it all and to, to be able to see through everything, once you have finally attuned your BS detector, it becomes a lot harder to propagandize you. And we have propaganda coming at us at a pace that uh, is, is almost unimaginable. That doesn't mean it's all bad. Okay, so I'll give you, for for instance, propaganda that, in, that encourages you to wear your seatbelt. I mean, you may say, well, that's propaganda. It must be bad. No, it's probably not a bad idea. Maybe it's persuading you to do something that's good. You know, eat less uh, sugar and get out and move around more. That's There is such a thing as good propaganda, but there's also a lot of stuff that's designed to keep us from seeing the truth. I'm here to help you cut through that and to encourage you to think clearly and independently about the world around us. So let's dive right in. By the way, seeing things that are going on around us, being aware of them, oftentimes we owe a great debt to those people who are willing to stick their necks out and engage in investigative journalism. And that's why today is a very dark day for press freedom and for human rights in that the UK Home Secretary has approved the extradition of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to the US. Now, Long story short, Julian Assange released some, uh, I don't know, videos. I remember the the video Collateral Murder, which was actual uh, gun camera footage from U.S. attack helicopters in Iraq, which clearly showed not just the video, but also the radio transmissions showing U.S. pilots deliberately shooting up and killing unarmed Iraqi civilians, including children. And laughing about it, you know, joking about it. And I mean, it's, look, I'm not trying to say that our soldiers are the only source of, of badness in the world. But I'm saying when, when you turn loose the dogs of war, really ugly stuff happens. And when the U.S. tries to pretend, well, you know, we are the force for good in the world, stuff like this greatly undermines that narrative. Because it shows the true nature of what's being done. Out of sight, out of mind, you know, we don't have to think about that. We got 500 channels and, you know, Netflix binges to engage in. But Julian Assange encouraged people to, you know, to whistleblowers to step forward. And we learned a lot about just how utterly corrupt so many of the world's governments are. Now, this was just investigative journalism. The whistleblowers were the ones who provided the information. Assange just provided a platform. But he stands accused of uh, espionage. And they want to put him away. If not, you know, execute him outright. He's facing a 175-year sentence if he is tried here in the U.S. And it's taken years. He's been, you know, he was in exile in the Ecuadorian embassy for many, many years there in London. They finally came and physically kidnapped him from that embassy. And he's been sitting in Belmarsh prison ever since. And now it looks like the U.S. is going to extradite him. and, uh, And the British government has agreed to it. I mean, I'm sorry, this, I'm not trying to, you know, undermine your faith in government, but, well, actually, I guess I am. This is the kind of authoritarian abuse that is directly tied to your freedoms. It's not just this uh, troublemaker founder of WikiLeaks. His freedom is coupled to all of our freedoms. And if this serves to chill investigative journalism throughout the world, 
then uh, it's going to be a lot harder to tell the truth. I mean, it's already getting harder to tell the truth, right? Why else would we have a misinformation committee, you know, drawn up in the Department of Homeland Security? Sad day. It's a sad day indeed. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the hypocrisy and the disconnect of the January 6th probe. Got an article here from uh, Miranda Devine. This is from the uh, New York Post. She points out that even if the ratings have been mediocre, Nancy Pelosi's January 6th show trial has had its arresting moments, as you might expect from a made-for-TV drama produced by a former ABC News president. I believe, isn't this the same guy who uh, told uh, his reporter to spike the Jeffrey Epstein story because it was, uh, it was a little too inconvenient for people in power who were the clients of Jeffrey Epstein who made numerous flights to his little pedo island? Hmm. Interesting. Video of former <clears throat> Attorney General Bill Barr saying he always thought election fraud claims by then-President Donald Trump were BS was a highlight. And Miranda Devine says, uh, you know, the, Barr's declaration back in December of 2020, four weeks after the election, that the Justice Department had found no evidence to support allegations of widespread voter fraud, that really was the death blow to efforts to change the result. And she says, look, if Trump had stopped then and understood that winning the two Senate runoffs in Georgia the following month were crucial to his legacy, the country would have been spared a lot of suffering and Joe Biden's adventurism would have been kept in check. But she says there's no doubt Trump was the one most damaged by the January 6th riot. It handed his enemies a gift, discredited future revelations of election rigging, and it overshadowed the achievements of his presidency. But she says there were so many jarring hypocrisies and disconnects in the partisan J6 committee and its grand narrative of a conspiracy orchestrated by Trump and the assorted Proud Boys to overturn the election that we all have to be detached from reality in order to believe it. And she says the Dems are delusional if they think hysterically dramatizing the events of that sad day will help them in the midterms or move the dial one iota on public perception of the Biden administration's failures. See, our memories don't lie. A two-tier system of justice that offers benign forbearance to violent Democratic allies who break the law and punitive zero tolerance toward nonviolent Trump supporters has destroyed any concept of accountability. And yes, she's saying we can't forget the far more lethal BLM Antifa riots in the months leading up to the 2020 election, which have largely gone unpunished. Just as the J6 rioters were Trump allies, the Antifa rioters were Democratic allies. One group rots in jail, the other continues its reign of terror unmolested. We can't forget how the whole of Midtown was boarded up in anticipation of the violent riots everyone knew would greet a Trump win. That was the instinct of most people, that the riots were in concert with the Democrats. And just as an aside here, we're seeing the very same dynamic being threatened for uh, the uh, impending uh, decision which will likely overturn Roe v. Wade. They just need an excuse. They're all geared up and ready to go. But will the press, you know, be condemning that kind of violence? No, no, no. We're still going to be focusing on the white supremacist threat to America. Anyway, back to the story. We can't forget the lives lost, the $2 billion in property damage, the cops demoralized, the lawlessness that persists in our cities as a result. She says we can't forget the armed insurrection outside the White House in May 2020 
to use the language of Pelosi's J6 committee. Domestic terrorists breaking down barriers, firebombing the historic St. John's Church, injuring police in an attempt to storm the White House. That was the Washington Post's idea of mostly peaceful protests. And we can't forget the president and his family having to be whisked into an underground bunker that night for their safety. Yet very few people were brought to account. Felony rioting charges brought by police against more than 100 people were almost all dropped. And we can't forget the way that Biden gave a wink and a nod to the defund the police movement during his campaign. The candidate who once styled himself as a law and order guy, but then refused to condemn violent anarchists torching our cities, was happy to slime cops as systematically racist. Nor has he condemned the current violence of pro-abortion activists, including the attempted assassination of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, the continuing harassment of judges outside their homes, and attacks on pro-life centers across the country since the leak last month of a draft opinion suggesting the court would overturn Roe v. Wade. So yeah, there's, there's, and she lists several other attacks by Antifa-linked groups like Jane's Revenge. So forgive us if we don't get too worked up at the J6 committee's case against Trump because uh, the current threat is from one side and that side is the one that's in a frenzy of the prospect that Roe v. Wade could be overturned. We've got bigger fish to fry. That's why a lot of people don't really care about the J6 committee. What was the, oh, it was the Babylon Bee. Congress to convene a committee on June 9th to try to determine why nobody cares about the January 6th committee. <laughs> or nobody was tuned into the June 6th hearings. Oh, my goodness. we got to worry about surviving the, the next two years of Biden. And I think our work is cut out for us. Good luck. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. I do appreciate you being part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. I want to mention uh, Dixie Chiropractic. In fact, you can check out their website, DixieChiro.com. I've got a link in my show notes. This is Dr. Ward Wagner. And if you are dealing with pain, if you're suffering from pain, whether it's from car accident injuries, herniated discs, or bulging discs, or even neuropathy, well, Dr. Wagner's there to help you. And by the way, I've talked with people who have, have, I have a a couple of friends who are now regular patients of Dr. Wagner, and they speak so highly of him. I mean, one of them actually has used the term miracle worker. And I, and I don't think he uses that term lightly. He's saying this is, this is something Dr. Wagner has helped him with and just uh, kept him running. So this is high praise from people who know what they're talking about, at least my friends. To me, this is like, this is really powerful uh, testimonial on their part. If you'd like to find out more, maybe check out a couple of their intro specials that they offer. Go to DixieCairo.com. If you're in southern Utah, I mean, this is right there in your neck of the woods. You are so lucky. DixieCairo.com. You know, to hear the people in power tell it, we citizens are duty-bound to do whatever they say we have to do. And and I'm not just talking about here in the U.S. I mean, last week, wasn't it uh, Justin Trudeau in Canada was talking about how, well, in Canada, you do not have the right to use a firearm in self-defense. You can use it to hunt or you can use it to target shoot. But uh, in Canada, you don't have the right to use a gun for self-defense. 
And I thought, isn't that cute? He thinks he can overrule natural law. Every living thing has the right to defend itself. Everything. And it will. It'll, it'll try to defend itself. Man, I, I watched my dog yesterday chase down and kill a rock chuck in my backyard. Now, it's, I know, for animal rights people, it's like, oh, no, don't tell me that. But I, I want you to understand, even the rock chuck <laughs> tried to protect itself. It was, it was fighting, you know, right to the end, which thankfully was very quick and, and fairly merciful. But the point that, that I need you to consider here is whether or not your rights are negotiable Are they really just subject to whatever a politician says? Let's turn to our friend Ken McManigal, who I think has the most straightforward take on this that I've seen. Ken McManigal says, Politicians speak most passionately about things they understand the least, like guns. This is especially dangerous when they talk about what they believe your rights are. President Biden has recently shown he doesn't understand rights, he confuses them with privileges, and he's plotting to violate our rights because he doesn't like them. Now, Ken McManigal says this is criminal behavior from him, and it should be treated as such. Recent events caused emotions to run high, which leads to foolish threats from authoritarian politicians. But it doesn't change what our rights are, nor does it excuse the threat to violate them. He says the rights of good people can't depend on what bad people do, especially when our rights are all that stand between us and letting the bad people do anything to anyone at any time without opposition such as happens in schools or hospitals or any place where your right to defend yourself and others with effective tools is routinely violated. Now, he says, you've probably seen the bumper sticker come to life. When seconds count, the police are only minutes away, maybe an hour or more, assuming they're inclined to help. Kent McManigal says some politically minded people like to claim that there are no such thing as rights. It's only about power and who has the power to do what to whom. Well, if that's true, then no one has any reason to complain about anyone, anything that anyone with power does. I mean, after all, Putin had the power to invade Ukraine, so the Ukrainian people had no right not to be displaced or killed. So all is fine. The same could be said about every other dictator who caused holocausts. If rights aren't a real thing, well, then people should just shut up and take it, whatever it happens to be. Now, Kent McManigal says, look, I don't believe this is reality. Society can only exist if we each respect the rights of those around us and stand up with effective tools of defense against those who refuse to do so. Whether it's the grimy mugger from the alley or the mentally compromised occupant of the Oval Office. His point is that rights are non-negotiable and must be defended regardless of the opinions of those with power. And when those with power try to make it so you're unable to effectively resist them, then it's doubly important you do so before it's too late. Do you want to sentence your grandchildren to a life of slavery? Slavery, rather, or is is liberty worth the risk? Well, Kent McManigal says, I know where I stand. See, I kind of feel the same way. And look, I understand. This is this is one of those times where it can very easily devolve into, I'm going to sit here and beat my chest and, you know, come and get them. Come and take it. But I think you do have to take the attitude of of drawing that line ahead of time. I don't think sitting quietly by... And and guys, I I may tread on some some 
toes here when I say this, but uh, if you're one of those people who says, well, you know, <laughs> they can pass whatever gun law they want. I lost my guns in an unfortunate boating accident. I'm sorry. But if, if it's to the point where you feel like, hey, I have to pretend like I don't have any guns so that uh, the, the government won't focus on me, you're missing the point. If you've considered, do I, do I have the proper tools and equipment that I could bury my guns, you know, in case they want to come around and confiscate them? Again, you're missing the point. If it's so bad that you have to pretend you don't own any guns or you have to bury them in order to keep them out of the hands of government, there's no nice way to say this, but if it's gotten to that point, it's time to use those guns as they were intended, and that is to pick them up and defend your God-given rights. Now, for some people, actually, I, I would hope for most people, that's going to be a moral dilemma. That's going to be something that I hope they don't approach lightly. But let's try to get some clarity here in terms of when is it right and when is it wrong to resist aggression? See, if you're the one initiating force, if you're the one initiating aggression, well, you are probably not standing on the moral high ground. But if someone else is initiating aggression against you, that's not a consideration. They forfeited the moral high ground when they initiated that aggression. And yes, you are justified in resisting. Now, again, I don't say this lightly because I don't, I don't think, you know, that uh, every dispute, you know, you just pick up a gun and you solve the problem. I mean, that's, that's how the anti-gunners like to talk. Well, if we, if we relax our concealed carry laws, people are going to be shooting each other over parking spaces out there at Walmart. But that doesn't happen. At the same time, if there is a time to defend what is precious, and that would include your rights, and I'm talking about those natural rights which limit government power over you, limit the ability of others to coerce and force you to do things that are not in your best interest, then I, I don't know what would be a better time. Now, of course, you have your conscience that you have to deal with. And you have to be able to answer these kind of questions. Was it worth it? You know, can I live with my conscience? At what point would I be willing to shed blood to defend what is most precious to me? Authoritarians will tell you, you're never justified in doing that. We have a system. We have a system to work. Well, if we have a system that you control and is being used to try to enslave me, I have absolutely no obligation to help you accomplish that enslavement. But it takes courage to stand up and to claim those rights, to use them, and even more so to defend them. And no, it's not without risk. You know, there, there are, sometimes there are very high prices to be paid. The name Lavoie Finnicum comes to mind. And, and I just want to clarify, Lavoie Finnicum was not engaged in a gunfight with police when he was killed. He was simply in the middle of a situation in which the authorities set something in motion where there was zero room for error and one wrong move would justify them killing him because they were so afraid and you better believe they seized on that and it's a tragedy but you know what the cause of freedom continues to move forward a lot of people were galvanized by that action what things are worth more than life itself I know how Lavoie would answer that question this is the Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Special shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry. And even though interest rates are creeping up, if you want to draw upon her expertise, I can promise you, you will not be disappointed. You can reach her at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. And this is true for my listeners anywhere in the state of Utah or the state of Idaho. Heather is there, along with her team, to help you get the loan you need and get it in a timely fashion. All right, here's a question for you. How do you know when someone's trying to put one over on you? Are you a human lie detector? I mean, can you tell when someone's trying to bamboozle you? Sadly, I think all of us have to struggle with this from time to time because we encounter, you know, it could could be news stories. It could be a political stump speech. It could be somebody just trying to sell you something. How can you recognize when someone is trying to BS you? Sorry, (laughs) self-edit there. That That was a close one. Kilgore Pharrell writing for everythingvoluntary.com, says, nobody asked, but uh, he, he shares a quote here from Philip K. Dick. Quote, because today we live in a society in which spurious realities are manufactured by the media, by governments, by big corporations, by religious groups, political groups. So I ask in my writing, what is real? Because unceasingly we are bombarded with pseudo-realities manufactured by very sophisticated people using very sophisticated electronic mechanisms. I do not distrust their motives. I distrust their power. They have a lot of it, and it is an astonishing power. That of creating whole universes, universes of the mind. I ought to know. I do the same thing. I don't know if you've read any of Philip K. Dick's novels, but there, he, he's right. He does create whole universes. If you've seen Minority Report, that's one of his stories. So, Kilgore Farrell says, look, having read that and agreed, I started to look for a rule of thumb for recognition of BS. And he found this, this acronym, RAVEN. This is a way to analyze whether something that's being told to you is true. So, R... In Raven stands for reputation. You likely have to rely upon factual and or probable inputs from others, people you have not accompanied 24-7, 365. Elsewise, we need to know whom to trust. How many people have posted on social media things they only believe to be true? The A in Raven stands for ability to observe. Remember the Walter Cronkite production? You are there. If not, there's no way... One can see whether happenings are factual or wishful. A favorite example is second or third hand accounts. Well, my buddy was a Green Beret and he said, right? V stands for vested interest. Do you know anybody who has no agenda? Kilgore Farrell says, look, everybody, I say everybody has an agenda. E stands for expertise. Can you spot expertise and how would you go about verifying it? N stands for neutrality. Lack of bias cannot be asserted without support. Study some classic analysis of the types of bias before giving away neutrality. And he actually links in the article to a list of cognitive biases. Now, this is on Wikipedia, so some people might be like, oh, well, you can't trust it if it's on Wikipedia, but it's pretty cool. 
I mean, it, it goes through a whole long list. Things like anchoring bias, availability heuristic, and confirmation bias, cognitive dissonance, uh, extension neglect. I mean, there some of these I've never even heard of. But if you want to really dive in to see some of the different things that can affect how we perceive what others are telling us or things that can, can uh, actually influence our thinking and cause us to believe things that may or may not be true, this is a good place to start. And, you know, it starts also with that, that recognition. No matter how well intended, no matter how smart you are, how many degrees you have hanging on the wall, each of us still is human. And as such, we are prone to error. And we are, you know, subject to, to making mistakes. We're, we're fallible. So there's got to be at least a, a modicum of humility Anytime we approach a subject, we have to be willing to say, look, I could be wrong here, or I don't know about this. And again, I still hearken back to Charlie Reese, who I, I, I now realize influenced my thinking far more than I thought possible. Not so much that he gave me the right things to think, but he, he gave me tools to help weigh things out and to, to really you know think about them. Charlie Reese is the guy who taught me about why the ability to think clearly and independently is the single most important duty of citizens during times of crisis. That's where I get that. Charlie Reese is the guy who taught me that when it comes to discussing a person or discussing an issue, one of the very first questions we have to ask ourselves is, what do I actually know about this that wasn't told to me by somebody else? In other words, what have I done to really go after this information and own it, to, to make sure that I understand what I'm talking about because I paid the price to understand it? And the sad truth, if, if, we're, if we're really being honest, as we have to admit, on most things, all we know is what somebody else told us. So again, it's, you, have to, you have to temper that desire to be right with the understanding that if, if you're just running on borrowed light, that's still borrowed light and not something you've yet paid the price to know for yourself. Now, Charlie Reese also cautioned, you know, you don't have to run around in a permanent state of indecision because of this, but you do have to be humble enough to say, I could be wrong and, and be willing to, to apply yourself into learning what you don't know. I know time is short. None of us really has the time to sit down and study things out the way that we want to. But I promise you this. If something matters enough to you, if it, be, if it becomes a priority, take, for instance, uh, what was the movie? Lorenzo's Oil. I don't know if you're familiar with this. A kid has a, a chronic, uh, a very uh, destructive disease. And the most important thing in the world to his parents is to figure out some way to help him. And they didn't set out to become medical researchers. They didn't go and, you know, attend Stanford and, and uh, you know, become all credentialed. They just, they went after the information because it was their son's life that was in the balance. And they come up with something that is workable. I'm not going to use the word cure, but the bottom line is it mattered enough to them that they were willing to go to the ends of the earth to figure out what would work. And it's the same with pretty much any topic that matters. My good friend Albert, haven't talked to him in a while, but man, I love this guy. Humble, hardworking, really reaching out and helping people around him. Albert 
some years ago, and I'm talking, you know, quite a few years ago, decided I want to know more about what is going on in the realm of monetary policy. Why is it that things happen the way that they do? In fact, I think it was around 2008, 2009, about the time of that particular meltdown, that Albert took a very keen interest in monetary policy. And he just threw himself into studying, reading, reading books that were over his head, seeking out people who had expertise, weighing what they had to say. And over the years, I'll tell you, this guy has become a fountain of knowledge. He's a legitimate expert. If I have a question, I want to know, hey, what's going on here, you know, with with this particular aspect of the economy or this part of of, uh, monetary policy? Why are we seeing, you know, the dollar shrink so much in terms of its buying power? He can give me a very well-informed answer. I go to him for, for questions on cryptocurrency, precious metals. Now, again, you may say, well, Brian, are you living on borrowed light? Yeah, I guess to an extent I could if I choose to, but I also understand this is a person whose expertise is legit because I've seen him and watched him consistently over the years pay the price to know what he knows. And, I mean, look, you can apply this to anything. Home birth, you can apply it to homeschooling, you can apply it to herbs, you can apply it to gardening, fixing cars, whatever. My point is simply this. If you're not on guard and and being careful to recognize BS, you're going to get bamboozled. So use caution. That means you you can't you can't trust me implicitly. Not that I'm setting out to deceive you, but I clearly don't have all the answers. I'm not going to knowingly mislead you, but I still might get something wrong. So it's on you. If you really want to find out about about something, you've got to be willing to vet the information. This is true for all of us. And it's going to take work. It'll take effort. It'll take sacrifice. And you can't be dogmatic about it. You know who the most unhappy people are, the most rigid people in their thinking, the dogmatic ones? It's the people who think they know what they know and they cannot learn something else. They're the ones who get angry when you don't agree with them. People who really have studied issues and are learning and really have a great base of knowledge to draw from, they don't have to prove themselves. They don't have to be right. If you disagree with them, they'll shrug it off and say, that's okay. That's because they understand. Sometimes we have to come to the truth on our own terms. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. In fact, I'll invite you, please click on the link I provide in my daily show notes. It'll take you right to their website. You can take it from there. So I'm not much on labels. I, I, was, I was singing the praises of uh, Charlie Reese here in the last segment. Okay, here's one more place where his, his thinking really influenced my own. And one of the, th- the things he counseled was don't be too keen on labels because too often labels are just a form of word magic that, uh, that causes people to substitute a label for thoughtful observation. So you see a person, well, I'm going to put a label on them. But uh, you're, you're making a, a snap judgment, maybe even a group judgment without actually observing. Well, what is this person like? What does their behavior tell you? 
That's foolishness. And you'll miss a lot if you take that approach. Having said that, I want to talk a little bit about conservatism. I don't like political labels very much. I, I don't... Uh, I don't thrive on, you know, let's identify ourselves. What are we? Libertarian, conservative, progressive, liberal, leftist, whatever. Sometimes they can help to clarify, but oftentimes I think they're just a substitute for, you know, thinking things through and trying to to observe what's going on. Now, having said that, there is an excellent article from the Z-Man on cargo cult conservatism. And this answers some really serious questions about why the conservative movement struggles. He says, if you were to go back in time to the 1980s, scoop up a group of conservatives and show them a recent post from the national conservatives, those retro conservatives would be very confused. For starters, they would be puzzled as to why such a thing was even necessary in 2022. Surely by this late date, everyone would know the general framework of the American right. More important, it would be the general framework of the nation given the trajectory of the conservative movement. But once the present situation in America was explained to them, they would no doubt want to know, well, what went wrong? Was there a horrible calamity that derailed conservatives and sent the nation reeling into authoritarian degeneracy? Did the left stage a revolt and seize the country by force? Did we lose the Cold War? At this point, the room would be, would fall silent as none of the signatories of this post, and it's, it's a bunch of, uh, I guess, what would be the, the new conservatives today, and I believe the post is titled A Statement of Principles, National Conservatism. It's from the Edmund Burke Foundation. Things like national independence, rejection of imperialism and globalism, national government, God and public religion, the rule of law, free enterprise, public research, family and children, immigration, and race. This is all of their takes. But here's what the Z-Man says. He says that uh, most of these folks who helped write this declaration have been participating in a long-running debate about what fills the void left by the implosion of William H. Buckley conservatism. A few camps have formed up around various concepts, and they all agree that Buckley-style conservatism was a failure, but there's not been much discussion about why it failed. In fact, they seem to think Buckley conservatism was fine, as they make clear in that document. Again, everything there was baseline conservatism in the 1980s. And those 1980s conservatives, he says, would be a bit puzzled by the names. Once they got their bearings, they would quickly figure out that many of their favorite conservatives in the 1980s did not live to see 2022. New voices would have come along to fill those spots, but surely some would have made it. Which of these names are taking up the banner once held by Sam Francis, Pat Buchanan, and Paul Gottfried? It seems like those guys were right about the direction of conservatism. So imagine the shock when it was explained that those guys were not only purged from conservatism, but preemptively purged from the new conservatism. Now, sure, this statement was being posted in a magazine founded by Pat Buchanan, but not a single name on that list would want his name in the same sentence with Buchanan or any of the other guys from the 1980s who turned out to be right. In fact, many have denounced the old paleos as immoral. So there's something to be said for getting back to basics in a time of stress. So this statement of principles makes sense for a group that largely seems dedicated to going back in time and starting over. By embracing what was standard-issue conservatism in the 1980s, they're hoping to reset the movement and install themselves at the top, with all the benefits that come from it. Now that means their central claim is that real conservatism has never been tried. 
It is in that document, however, where you see the seeds of failure within the old Buckley-style conservatism. For instance, the first principle starts with, we wish to see a world of independent nations. And that same paragraph finishes with, we endorse a policy of rearmament by independent self-governing nations and of defensive alliances whose purpose is to deter imperialistic aggression. Now, the Z-Man says the fact that this obvious contradiction was not obvious to the signers suggests that they've learned nothing from failure. As George Washington explained in his farewell address, a nation cannot remain independent when it forms alliances with other nations. As history makes clear, when you agree to defend Poland from its enemies, you inherit the enemies of Poland, even if that contradicts the interests of your people. Washington correctly argued that inveterate antipathies against particular nations and particular attachments for others should be excluded. The Z-Man says, one can maybe debate this point within the larger debate about conservatism, but there's no debating the bit about deterring imperialist aggression. The sole source of imperialist aggression in the world today is the global American empire. By reasoning in that first principle, the world or by the reasoning in that first principle, the world should be uniting in opposition to the United States and perhaps even the collective West. You can be certain that not a single signer of that document would agree with that point. But of course, it's the last point where they give the game away. This is the one on race. And this is surely the contribution of Yoram Hazemi, who seems to lack even a high school level understanding of human biology. Instead, he just accepts the far left claim that race is skin color and biology is a social construct. Now, whether he really believes this is open to debate, given that he is an Israeli, but he makes a point of denying biological reality whenever the opportunity arises. And that last principle is worse than ignorant. It is traitorous. These guys are claiming to defend the tradition, history, and culture of the people, and at the same time, they insist the history of racialist ideology and oppression and its ongoing consequences require us to emphasize this truth. Really? Who are those racist oppressors? Is it the guys whose statues lie in ruins? Is it the guys lying in graves desecrated by left-wing goons bellowing about the history of racialist ideology? So the Z-Man says, look, this gets to the failure of Buckley-style conservatism. At some point, Buckley figured out that he could enjoy the lifestyle he deserved by conceding the moral high ground to the people he claimed to oppose. Once he conceded that basic point he condemned himself to a lifetime of performing as a useful idiot for the benefit of his masters on the left, and he condemned his movement to failure. There's simply no room for conservative ends within the left-wing moral framework. Now, the Z-Man says a nation is a people, not a collection of abstract concepts. Within a nation, there can be a fair degree of variance, but relative relative to other people, the differences are tiny, from the perspective of outsiders. To a Swede, a Finnish atheist is no different than a Finnish Lutheran or a Finnish pagan. They're just Finns. On the other hand, no one, not even these egalitarian nationalists, would confuse a Finn for an African. That's because they are obviously different people. Finally, what this and the larger discussion within the group debating the future of conservatism reveals is that they have learned nothing That's because they have not bothered to think about why conservatism failed. Perhaps the danger that lies in such a project is the issue. Maybe they lack the intellectual firepower to tackle it. Either way, repeating the slogans of the past, hoping to recreate the past, 
is, a, is called a cargo cult, not a serious political movement. Now, that kind of stings because, you know, I think for most of my life, I would say, well, I am definitely a conservative. I don't think I would claim that label today. Not that, again, I'm, you know, so much about labels. I remember I've seen people over the years get frustrated and tell me, Brian, you don't know what you are. Which, when I translate it, really means they can't find an easily applicable label that fits, and so it's confusing and it's upsetting that they can't pigeonhole me as easily as they would like to. Again, the labels don't matter that much. What matters is, what do you stand for? And if you haven't undertaken the time to really sit down, and I mean literally write out on a piece of paper, this is who I am, this is what I stand for, and make a thoughtful list of the things that you consider most important. And I I mean, if you want to put it in this context, these are the things that I live for, these are the things that I would promote, these are the things for which I would be willing to suffer and maybe even die. It's a very revealing exercise, and it's something that I think everybody should do. And frankly, if you haven't done it at some point, or at least in in some way clarified those issues, who am I, what do I stand for, chances are very good that when the pressure is on, you're just going to revert into, you know, self-survival mode, and you're not going to stand for anything. You're going to knuckle under and try to find safety in the crowd. You're better than that. You were born to make a bigger difference than that. So let's live up to that. This is The Brian Hyde Show.